Hi, welcome to the Fiction Machine podcast. Fiction Machine is a website written by me, Grant Watson, and it explores the making of interesting films and has a look at how good movies are built by the talented artists that make them. So you can find the essays, they're kind of half criticism, half making of essay, at www.fictionmachine.com, and a new essay is uploaded at least once a month. I'm trying to average every two weeks, sometimes it slips to every three weeks, but there's definitely one up every month. This is the podcast version of the same site, which provides the same information, just in an audio format, so you can listen to it wherever you are without having to waste that valuable eye energy on your computer, tablet, or mobile telephone screen. Fiction Machine is funded by the generous donations of the Fiction Mechanics via Patreon. For more information on how you can help fund the writing and presentation of Fiction Machine, follow the link at the top of the Fiction Machine website, www.fictionmachine.com. In 1831, the Parisian publisher Gosselin released Notre Dame de Paris, a.k.a. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It was the first full-length novel by the author Victor Hugo. It's a dark, overtly sexual tragedy set in 15th century Paris, in which a gypsy performer named Esmeralda becomes the target of Notre Dame's conflicted and levicious archdeacon Claude Frollo. He sends his adopted son, the orphaned hunchback Quasimodo, to kidnap Esmeralda. Only Quasimodo falls in love with her and refuses to obey Frollo's commands. Meanwhile, Esmeralda seems more interested in guard captain Phoebus, so Frollo arranges to have Phoebus murdered and Esmeralda hanged for the crime. By the novel's conclusion, Esmeralda is executed on Frollo's orders, Frollo himself has been fatally thrown from the bell tower of Notre Dame Cathedral, and a heartbroken Quasimodo has starved himself to death. 162 years later, directors Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise set about the task of adapting this dark, sensual, near 600-page novel into a family-friendly animated musical for Walt Disney Pictures. It's one of the most bizarre creative choices I think I've seen. Bizarre that someone had the idea. Bizarre that they actually developed it enough to pitch it. Bizarre that Disney executives Frank Wells, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg all greenlit it for production. Bizarre that it actually made it into cinemas. And most of all, bizarre that it reached the screen with so much of that tragedy, violence, Catholicism and deep-seated sexual obsessions intact. It's an outstanding achievement in feature film animation, but there's no questioning the fact that it is just about the strangest animated film ever released by the Walt Disney Company. It simply defies rational explanation. The original idea to adapt Hunchback came from a Disney development executive named David Stane. When he took the idea to Disney studio chair Jeffrey Katzenberg, it was Katzenberg who decided to enlist Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, who had recently finished working on Beauty and the Beast. Following Beauty and the Beast, Gary Trousdale had taken the opportunity to take a break from directing, instead spending several months developing storyboards for Disney's The Lion King. He and Kirk Wise had subsequently attempted developing an animated feature based on the Greek myth of Orpheus, but adapting it to make the central character a whale and setting it out in the open ocean. That concept obstinately refused to pull together, but while they were working on that project, they were summoned to meet with Katzenberg. Gary Trousdale explained, During that time, while we were working on it, we got a call from Jeffrey. He said, Guys, drop everything. You're working on Hunchback now. By the time Trousdale and Wise were appointed to direct The Hunchback of Notre Dame, both composer Alan Menken and lyricist Stephen Schwartz had also been convinced to join the nascent project. Menken had worked with the directors before on Beauty and the Beast, of course, and Schwartz had recently collaborated with Menken on the score to Pocahontas, replacing Menken's former songwriting partner, the late Howard Ashman. 
Mencken would later cite Hunchback as his most artistically ambitious score for Disney. But now, to understand why Disney would pursue such a dark, mature text for an animated feature, it's worth looking at the films it had been producing in the preceding years. For much of the 1980s, the Walt Disney Animation Studio was in a rut. It was forced to find co-production partners to afford its animated films, and it was failing to find a mass audience through a string of underperformers and outright misfires. The Fox and the Hound in 1981, The Black Cauldron in 1985, Great Mouse Detective in 1986, and Oliver and Company in 1988. In 1989, they suddenly managed to score a major hit with The Little Mermaid, which managed to earn both $200 million in cinemas and also revive critical interest in Disney's animated films. Now, Trousdale and Wise's own Beauty and the Beast, released in 1981, took Disney to unprecedented heights. Not only did it gross $150 million in the USA alone, it also became the first animated film in history to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. To come so close to winning the award had a profound effect on several key figures within the company, notably studio chair Jeffrey Katzenberg. He immediately set about looking for a property that could not just get a second Best Picture nomination, but that could win it as well. Because of the long lead time required to animate a full-length feature, upcoming films such as Aladdin, which was released in 1992, or The Lion King, 1994, were too far along in their production schedules to be suitable for Katzenberg's needs. He instead turned his attention to potential films that would be released in the years afterwards and ensuring that they were crafted into unusually mature, more adult-friendly dramas. So his first attempt was 1995's Pocahontas, the first of Disney's animated features to be based on a real-life historical figure. While beautifully animated, the finished film seemed so concerned with being worthy and respectable that it ultimately came across as a fairly static, cold, unlikable picture. seems extremely likely that Katzenberg's second attempt was this, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Tab Murphy, the writer of Gorillas in the Mist, was hired to develop a story treatment. Hunchback marked the beginning of a long professional relationship between Murphy and Walt Disney Studios. He would subsequently write or co-write the screenplays for Tarzan, Atlantis the Lost Empire, and Brother Bear. So The Hunchback of Notre Dame was formally pitched to Walt Disney executives in November 1993. Accompanying the directors and story heads were Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz, who performed early versions of the film's proposed songs. Schwartz said... After Alan Menken and I had been working on Pocahontas for about a year and it was clear that the project and collaboration were going well, the folks at Disney offered us a chance for a couple of ideas that they had been developing as a follow-up. We more or less immediately chose Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, while there were clear concerns about the film's dark themes and tone, the project was given a tentative green light, on the main condition that the film didn't overplay the overt Catholicism of Hugo's original work. So one of the first changes made to accommodate Disney's request was turning the villainous Claude Frollo into a judge rather than an archdeacon. It reduced the number of religious undertones in the finished film. Another was, unsurprisingly maybe, the film's conclusion. While Frollo's death was retained, and indeed made even more horrific than in the book, both Quasimodo and Esmeralda were spared their fates and given a happy ending. This revised ending was based in part on Victor Hugo's own libretto to a hunchback opera, in which he had allowed Captain Phoebus to save Esmeralda from her execution. Kirkwise said, We knew it would be a challenge to stay true to the material, while still giving it the requisite amount of fantasy and fun that most people would expect from a Disney animated feature. We were never going to end it the way the book ended, with everybody dead. Gary Trousdale said, We had an extra year that we didn't have on Beauty, so it was a little more relaxed that way, rather than a vague concept. You know, Beauty and the Beast had so many different versions of it, going back to Roman times and Greek mythology all the way through to the classic Jean Cocteau version and everything else. Hunchback of Notre Dame was, you know, Victor Hugo. Here's the book. With most of Disney's animators busy working on Pocahontas and The Lion King, many new animators were hired from Canada and the United Kingdom to join the production. 
The production team was housed in a warehouse facility in Glendale, California, while the development process got underway. The directors watched all the previous film adaptations of the novel to see how each production team had gone about adapting it. The art team made several visits to Paris, where artists took numerous photos of Notre Dame Cathedral for research purposes. Quasimodo was a difficult protagonist for the production team to develop. In the novel, the character was deaf, physically deformed, and a fairly unlikable social outcast. While the Disney version had his hearing restored, he still needed to be deformed, it's, it's in the title, and simultaneously be an appealing lead that audiences would like. Finding the balance between the grotesque and the heroic would take the film's design team eight months. In one particular respect, the Disney adaptation translated Quasimodo more accurately to the screen than any previous movie version, because in most films the hunchback was portrayed as a middle-aged character, whereas in the Disney film and the novel, Quasimodo's much younger. To provide Quasimodo's voice, Wise and Trousdale turned to acclaimed British actor Tom Hulse, who'd been nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in Amadeus in 1984. Hulse also provided the character's singing voice. It was hard for me, he said. I'd never done anything that was just standing in front of a microphone at a little glass booth. The film's female lead, the gypsy dancer Esmeralda, presented a different sort of challenge. The initial designs of the character were seen as far too attractive and sensual, and the art team were instructed to tone down her sexualized appearance and ensure that she was fully clothed at all times. Can't help be noticed, however, that in the final release film, she is still the only Disney heroine to perform a pole dance. Esmeralda was voiced by Demi Moore. She was specifically courted for the role based on her distinctive husky voice. Following the recording of her lines and before Hunchback's theatrical release, Moore starred in the risque drama Striptease, released by Warner Brothers in 1996. Now, while this film was unrelated to Walt Disney Pictures or Hunchback, the strip dancing and nudity in Striptease nonetheless gave conservative religious and family groups fresh ammunition with which to accuse Walt Disney Pictures of licentiousness and moral corruption. Seemed to be a fashion of the time in the religious right. The guard captain, Phoebus, was reimagined into a considerably more likeable character compared to the book, and he was also given a unique look among Walt Disney's animated romantic leads. Wise and Trousdale insisted upon giving him a beard. This sounds really stupid, but this conflicted with a long-standing rule within the company that had been championed by Jeffrey Katzenberg. Male characters didn't have facial hair. The directors had to fight to keep their Phoebus design. Carrie Trousdale said there was some discussion that he was not handsome enough. Phoebus was voiced by Oscar-winning actor Kevin Klein, another noted performer with a distinctive and evocative voice. The use of famous actors to perform roles in animated films had always been a factor in Hollywood's animation industries. Disney's own The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in 1949, for example, used both Basil Rathbone and Bing Crosby, big stars of the time. In recent years, however, the practice had gained a new currency. The casting of Robin Williams as the genie in Aladdin had resulted in a burst of publicity and hugely increased box office. It was clear that using famous actors allowed animated films to be marketed at adults as well as just families and children. As a result, Disney and its competitors began using more and more stars to bolster their marketing. The Lion King had featured James Earl Jones, Jeremy Irons and Matthew Broderick, while Pocahontas was promoted heavily on the back of co-star Mel Gibson. So with Moore and Klein, Disney hoped they had another marketing hook that they could use to promote this movie. Now with the Parisian judge Claude Frollo, Wise and Trousdale had found the most disturbing villain pretty much in the history of Walt Disney Pictures. Not only officious, callous, manipulative, racist and murderous, he also has a contradictory lust for Esmeralda. Now the primary inspiration for the character came from Eamon Goethe, the monstrous Nazi commandant in Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, who would shoot Jews from his balcony for sport while simultaneously engaging in an affair with a Jewish housemaid. According to Hunchback's supervising animator, James Baxter, Frollo, quote, made the people upstairs freak. He's not just a power-hungry megalomaniac, he's lustful. 
Frollo was designed by animator Kathy Zelinsky. The very first hook I got for Frollo, she said, was Hans Conried. I studied a lot of different faces in movies, real life or whatever. I did some caricatures of these faces to start developing something. Frollo's design came out of Hans Conried, based on his appearance in The Five Thousand Fingers of Dr. T. Frollo was played by theatrical actor Tony Jay. He said, He's similar to Anthony Hopkins in The Silence of the Lambs. He controls by a look. He wants to control everyone, except himself. The actor added, I wanted to inject a little bit of humour into him. Archness is probably a better word. There was a real sense of irony in the writing, and I just embroidered and enhanced that a little. There was considerable debate about Frollo's death. While it was fairly traditional for Disney villains to die during a film's climax, few died as horribly as Frollo's fall into molten metal from Notre Dame's bell tower. For Gary Trousdale, it was the only sensible suggestion. We said, it will not work if we pants Frollo, or his hat catches on fire. He's a horrible, horrible person. Trousdale and Wise investigated the possibility of giving Quasimodo some sidekicks, characters with whom he could talk and process his thoughts while isolated in the bell tower of Notre Dame Cathedral. Initial concepts involved Quasimodo befriending the birds that nested in the tower, as well as the bells themselves brought to life in a similar fashion to the talking furnishings of Beauty and the Beast. Ultimately, they decided to create three gargoyles, ugly stone statues that could come to life and keep Quasimodo company when he was alone. And as a tribute to three notable big-screen Quasimodos, they decided to name them Cheney, Lawton and Quinn, after actors Long Cheney, Charles Lawton and Anthony Quinn. Pop star and occasional actress Cindy Lauper was the first voice artist hired for the film. She was a lifelong admirer of Disney, and so the singer leaped at the chance to play the part of Quinn. It was the most sensitive and heartfelt of the three gargoyles. Shortly afterwards, Tracy Ullman show co-star Sam McMurray was cast as the brash, crude Cheney. The Walt Disney Pictures legal department at this point objected to the proposed names of the gargoyles, fearing that the estates of Lon Chaney or Charles Lawton, or the still very much living Anthony Quinn, might file a lawsuit over the use of their names. The Hunchback production team briefly toyed with naming the characters Lon, Charles and Anthony instead, which resulted in the same legal concern, before finally naming them Victor, Hugo and Laverne. The origin of the names Victor and Hugo, fairly self-explanatory. The name Laverne was selected by Kirk Wise as a tribute to Andrew's sister, singer Laverne Andrews. As the script was developed, it was decided that the gargoyles Hugo and Laverne were not working sufficiently well. While Cindy Lauper and Sam McMurray's performances were widely admired, they didn't really appear to gel with the rest of the film. Laverne, in particular, who had been portrayed as energetic and youthful, needed to come across as wiser and more mature. While replacement recording sessions were undertaken with Lauper and McMurray, the decision was ultimately taken to drop both performances and recast the roles. McMurray was replaced with Seinfeld star Jason Alexander, who had previously voiced one of the villains in Disney's director video feature The Return of Jafar. After toying with removing Laverne from the film altogether, the production team re-envisaged the character more in the vein of a crazy grandmother. And Mary Wicks, who had most recently played the popular sister Mary Lazarus in Disney's 1994 comedy The Sister Act 2, was cast in the part. Sadly, tragedy struck the production on the 22nd of October 1995, when Mary Wicks suddenly passed away, leaving several of her scenes as Laverne incomplete, rather than completely recast the part for the second time. Former child actress Jane Withers filled in to record Wick's final six lines. Now the film's powerful opening, in which Quasimodo's mother is brutally murdered by Frollo in under four minutes and as part of a musical number, was the result of a tight collaboration between animators and composers. Stephen Schwartz said, The Britsy Brothers, a storyboard artist, had done a series of drawings, and Alan and I incorporated them into the structure of the song, which we had decided to write for the character of Clopin, 
acting as a narrator. We went back and forth with the artists a couple of times before the final structure was arrived at. The Britzy brothers, Paul and Gaetan, were to have a profound effect on the tone and aesthetic of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, they started their animation career working under the acclaimed director Paul Grimaud in the early 1970s, and by the 1980s they were running their own Paris-based animation studio, directing the popular animated feature Asterix vs. Caesar, 1985, and contributing extensively to the Babar television series. In 1989, their studio was purchased outright by Disney Television, which was eager to expand its operations to cope with the rapid growth of Disney animated product. So from 1990, the Britsies worked in various production and directing roles on DuckTales, Tailspin, and a Goofy movie, 1995. They also acted as joint general managers of their studio, now renamed Walt Disney Animation France. In early 1994, they were approached about contributing to The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Paul Britsy said, Gaetan, myself, we say, what do we do? We better forget our hat as general managers. It was too much administration for us. We will take the risk. The Britsies arrived in Los Angeles in May 1994 and set about storyboarding seven key sequences for the film, including the crucial prologue and Frollo's iconic Hellfire sequence. These sequences were then subsequently animated back in Paris under the supervision of producer Roy Conley. Paul Britsy said, Hunchback for us was a great experience because we feel close to the black romanticism of Victor Hugo, which is full of power. The Britsies' contribution to The Hunchback of Notre Dame was enormous, as it was predominantly their sequences that delivered much of the darker, more gothic elements of the film. Without their input, it seems likely that Hunchback would not have come to the screen in quite as ominous and transgressive a way as it did. The Britsies have continued to work with Walt Disney on a number of projects, including directing the Firebird sequence in Fantasia 2000 and contributing extensively to Tarzan. To achieve large-scale crowd scenes, particularly for the film's climax, computer animation was used to generate several hundred characters at a time. Now, CGI had been used at Disney for some time, but with The Lion King, a major breakthrough would be made. Rather than animate a frightened herd of wildebeest frame by frame, a software application generated each character automatically and procedurally calculated their movement through a canyon. The result was a dynamic, impactful action sequence featuring more animals than would ever have been achieved using conventional pen and ink animation. Trousdale and Wise had seen this wildebeest stampede in development and hit on the idea of adapting the software to generate not just animals, but people. The resulting software allowed for vast crowds of people to appear throughout the film, particularly during the film's climax, where Quasimodo dramatically swings over hundreds of people in order to rescue Esmeralda. In the end, approximately 600 artists contributed to the production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame across three separate studios in Los Angeles, Paris and Florida. Now, the finished film was far and away the darkest and most challenging animated feature that Walt Disney Animated Studios had ever produced. Now, Disney films have always been fairly dark, as far back as Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, for example, where Snow White runs through a demonic, shrieking forest. By comparison, however, Notre Dame seems positively perverse. The first thing that happens in the entire movie is a hate crime. The central narrative is about the bigoted oppression of a minority group. The villain tries to burn the heroine at the stake, while in another scene, the second male lead gets shot in the chest. There are scenes of sexual perversion and longing, violent torture, attempted hangings, religious hypocrisy, and generous helpings of self-doubt and Catholic guilt. At one point, an obsessive Frollo even reaches out to sniff at Esmeralda's hair. Far away, the most disturbing sequence of the film is Hellfire, a musical number in which Frollo sings about his passionate sexual longing for Esmeralda while rubbing her discarded scarf over his face. While Frollo sings, he imagines illusory monks around him chanting the Catholic confessional, as well as growing flames and a demonic fiery apposition of Esmeralda dancing. 
Like fire, Frollo sings, hellfire, this fire in my skin, this burning desire is turning me to sin. Like much of the film's score and songs, Hellfire is mostly composed in a minor key. This gives it an even darker and more oppressive tone than the animation would give it on its own. The animation was primarily undertaken by Kathy Zielinski with the support of a visual effects team and working from a detailed series of storyboards. The visual imagery of flames, red-cloaked monks and a dancing Esmeralda form the latest in a long series of similar hallucinatory sequences in Disney animation. The tradition of, if you want to call it a drug trip sequence, I guess, it originated in Dumbo in 1941 with its legendary Pink Elephants on Parade sequence. And it resurfaced periodically through the numerous films that followed. As recently as 1994, The Lion King had featured its own surreal animated musical number, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. Despite continuing this tradition, Hunchback presented the bleakest and most disturbed scene of its kind so far, and to date, nothing produced by Walt Disney has come close to matching it. Even at its conclusion, Hunchback refuses to pull its punches. Frollo falls to his death into a lake of boiling oil, while Esmeralda rejects Quasimodo in favour of the taller, more conventionally attractive Phoebus. The film shockingly defies expectation and convention. I mean, what is the ultimate message of this movie? For Quasimodo, it seems that while beauty may come from within, sometimes ugly is simply too damned ugly. He doesn't get the girl, as is the Disney tradition, and must be content instead with the people of Paris no longer screaming and throwing rotten fruit at him. Now, despite the dark, threatening tone of the film as a whole, Walt Disney's marketing division advertised The Hunchback of Notre Dame as a relatively light-hearted movie. Jason Alexander said... Disney would have us believe this movie is like the Ringling Brothers, for children of all ages, but I won't be taking my four-year-old. This could be a tough one, said one rival studio executive, speaking anonymously to the Los Angeles Times. Basically, you have a child, Quasimodo, held captive, and there's the whole handicap, societal misfit aspect. But you know Disney, if there's a way to sell it, they'll figure it out. Gary Trousdale said, All the marketing at the time, it was, It's a celebration, it's a festival, and you'd go to Disneyland and they were throwing confetti around and had the gypsy parade. The Hunchback of Notre Dame was released during a period when the Walt Disney Company was coming under fire from the USA's religious right. Lobby groups and church coalitions were appearing to find fault with everything the company released. The confirmation that Hunchback would openly feature Christianity, the church, and scenes of prayer gave the film considerable advance acclaim from these communities. The Reverend Lou Sheldon of the Traditional Values Coalition said, I'm thrilled at what I hear about Hunchback, that Disney is seeking to honour Christianity and its role in Western civilization. I only pray it will accompany, accomplish much good in the hearts and minds of its viewers. PBS-based critic Michael Medved, however, was in a better position to comment having seen the final film. This is not a film that's going to be reassuring to the religious community, he said. Upon release, The Hunchback of Notre Dame was highly divisive with critics. The New York Times' Janet Maslin was dismissive. Disney, having exhausted the entertainment value of teapots and candelabra, concocts dancing gargoyles who romp and wisecrack their way through the cathedral. It's a wonder that the stained glass windows don't come to life. On the other hand, Time magazine critic Richard Corliss claimed that, with The Hunchback of Notre Dame, directors Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, who made Beauty and the Beast, have splashed the broody emotions of Victor Hugo's epic novel with a bold, dazzling palette. Despite its significant changes from the novel, Hunchback actually became a massive success in France, where many critics and audiences found resonance with a real-life incident from August 1995, where French police stormed a Parisian church and took away more than 200 illegal immigrants who were seeking sanctuary from deportation. One critic wrote, It is difficult not to think of the undocumented immigrants in Saint Bernard when Frollo tries to sweep out the rabble. 
Not all French viewers were happy. Victor Hugo's own, own descendants took to a French newspaper to condemn the film, accusing the Walt Disney Company of, quote, commercial debauchery. Their open letter remarked, We believe that civilization should protect itself against the commercial looting and hijacking of great artistic works. It's not surprising that The Hunchback of Notre Dame received such a mixed response. It's a genuinely bizarre film, taking a gothic, lengthy, decidedly adult novel and adapting it into a 90-minute animated musical for families. The collision of style, tone and technique is, well, depending on the perspective of the viewer, either jarring and ridiculous or provocative and striking. I'm not entirely sure that the film can tolerate a middle ground. For my own part, I'm firmly in the latter camp. This is a fantastic, richly detailed animated film. It doesn't behave in the way that Disney animated features are supposed to behave. It's dark and cynical, and yet regularly punctures that darkness with moments of levity, lightness, and hope. Quasimodo's song Out There manages to do both darkness and light in the one number, for example. It is, above all things, an untrustworthy film. We expect our animated heroes to win the day and save the girl. The hero almost dies. He doesn't win the girl. Said girl almost dies at the hand of a sexually obsessive obsessive religious zealot. Even the gargoyles, which are easily the most jarring and Disney-esque element in the film, can't fully be trusted. With one exception, they only move when they're alone with Quasimodo. Only he sees them as alive. It's not entirely unreasonable to imagine that they don't move at all and that an isolated, abused Quasimodo simply hallucinates that they're there. The Hunchback of Notre Dame opened in American cinemas on the 21st of June 1996. In its theatrical run, it grossed a little over $100 million. That's US dollars. That's less than Pocahontas' $144 million and a long way short of The Lion King's $422 million. Internationally, the film fared somewhat better, grossing $225 million for a worldwide total of $325 million. This large international gross significantly larger than the one owned by Pocahontas, ultimately brought Hunchback's takings to within $20 million of that film. So while The Hunchback of Notre Dame was perhaps a commercial disappointment for Walt Disney, it was their lowest grossing animated feature since 1990's The Rescuers Down Under, given the source material and tone, it was, to be honest, about as good as Disney could have expected. Regardless of its commercial fortunes, The Hunchback of Notre Dame remains a unique and fascinating animated feature, dark, strange, and absolutely one of a kind.